It is good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. It's good to be here with you at Shoal Creek Church. The thought that we have on our mind this morning is found in the book of Romans in the 14th chapter. And this is in the middle of a larger lesson, but there's a wonderful phrase that is contained herein. And it says, for the kingdom, the 17th verse of Romans 14, it says, for the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. And it tells us over in the book of Colossians that we have been delivered out of the power of darkness and God had translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son. And as we reside in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of His Son, there's a lot of things that God could have inspired to be said about what His kingdom is and what it represents and what is contained therein. But what God desired to tell us is that His kingdom is righteousness, peace, and joy. And we want to talk about those three things just briefly this morning as we stand before you. And as we think about these things, what we're going to find here are some unassailable truths. Some things that absolutely stand fast for the people of God. Because the foundation of God standeth sure that the Lord knows those that are His. And when He has gathered up His people, and when He sends His Spirit into our hearts, and we're born again, translated into the kingdom of God, that is upon a sure, solid foundation. And the foundations that are found therein of righteousness and peace and joy are unassailable truths unto us as God's children. And where does that foundation stand upon? It is upon none other than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Because we need to think about where we are in and of ourselves. How can we as sinners have righteousness? How can we, who it says over here in the book of Isaiah, just so plainly tells us in Isaiah, if you turn over there to the 64th chapter, and you see in the 6th verse there, it says, But we all are, we are all, as an unclean thing, and all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we do all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. The, right, the Pharisees had a righteousness. Christ said they did. But their righteousness and our righteousness, anything that we could do, accumulate, find, work up in and of ourselves, is as filthy rags in the sight of the holy, righteous, almighty God. Filthy rags before God. There was none righteous, none that doeth good, none that seeketh after God. We're all servants of sin. Bringing forth fruit unto death. For the wages of sin is death. No righteousness, brothers and sisters. But what do we find over here in the book of Romans? And it tells us here in the 8th chapter. What did God do? <laughs> what action was taken? What movement was done on behalf of those that God had chosen before the foundation of the world? And says they're mine. And they gave, and God gave them unto His Son and said, These are mine, and I give them unto thee. And the Son said, I will do that that thou wouldest send me to do. And what do we find here in Romans 8? 
it tells us down here in the third verse, it says, For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son. No righteousness that we could obtain by our own efforts, our own works, nothing by the law that we could obtain. My wife and I have been going through uh, the book of Leviticus and listening to some of that. And when you read all the depths of the law, it was like, how did they even possibly manage to even try to follow all those instructions, all that detail, all that information that you had to do just to keep the ceremonial law. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. Christ came to do that that we could not do. Christ came to accomplish what was not possible for us to accomplish in and of ourselves. And the end of that was the fourth verse, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. There was a righteousness revealed in the coming of Jesus Christ. It was a righteousness that didn't make Christ righteous, but it was revealed in the fact that Jesus Christ kept the law to a John to a kettle, showed forth a righteousness that then was imputed unto us, that therefore we stand before God in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It says in Second Corinthians, over there in the fifth chapter, Second Corinthians chapter five, verse twenty-one. Those words tell us there, For He, God, hath made Him, Christ, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. That we might be made righteous. (laughs) Not of ourselves, but of Christ. Upon the solid foundation of the work of Jesus Christ. We do not stand as righteous before God in and of ourselves. We stand righteous in Jesus Christ. So then in Romans 5, in the 21st verse, it tells us there that as sin has ran to the death, <laughs> no righteousness, filthy rags, iniquity, none doing good, none falling after God. That's who we are in and of ourselves. But in Christ... Even so might grace reign. How does grace reign? How is the reigning manifestation of God's grace shown in our lives? It reigns through the righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. And that righteousness, see, see the unassailable truth of that? The righteous work of Jesus Christ shall reign unto eternal life. (laughs) It's going to carry us all the way through, brothers and sisters. You don't have to worry about it failing, stumbling, falling short, leaving any doubts, questions, um, misgivings in your mind about maybe you won't make it. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, you won't make it if it's us. You will make it if it's Christ. (laughs) So the kingdom of God is righteousness. 
righteousness, and peace. Peace. Brothers and sisters, as much as we need righteousness, we need peace. (laughs) Because the Word of God tells us in Romans in the third chapter, in the 19th verse there, says, well, we know that whatsoever the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law, which we all are in and of ourselves, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world become guilty before God. All of us. Later in Romans, it tells us that we were the ungodly, sinners, enemies against God. Romans 8 uses a strong language. Oh, they're telling us that we were at enmity, the carnal mind, Romans 8, 7. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. Absolutely, totally opposed. No peace, no reconciliation, no compromise between that that we are in of ourselves and between the holy, righteous God. No way to bring any union. The gap, the gulf is too great. The separation is too far. We were stood before God as the children of wrath, of judgment and condemnation because of the guilt of our sins. But what does Isaiah tell us? Also, Isaiah, in reference to this point, in Isaiah thirty-two seventeen. It says, and the work of righteousness shall be peace. And the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. (laughs) Boy, brothers and sisters, think about it as you sit this morning in the kingdom of God, that you're sitting in a place of peace, of quietness, of assurance. These are unassailable truths that are given unto us by God, through the Word of Jesus Christ, brought unto us by the Holy Ghost, by the way, because it says the kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. As it brings these truths unto us, we have been reconciled, brethren and sisters, as it tells us in Second Corinthians. Second Corinthians in the 5th chapter, earlier than where we were before, it relates unto us there, in 18th verse, and all things are of God, not of us, <laughs> who hath reconciled us to Himself by Jesus Christ. <laughs> we could not reconcile ourselves to God. We could not obtain peace with God. We had nothing within ourselves to secure that happiness, that peaceful relationship with God. So God stepped into the picture and by His Son, Jesus Christ, and by that righteous work that He wrought out, He has secured reconciliation of us to Himself by Jesus Christ. We are reconciled unto Him. And in that reconciliation, we stand before God as at peace. To approach unto God, the God of God, the Lord of Lords, the omnipotent God, and to be at peace. And to say, God's not 
mad with me, upset with me, opposed to me, against me. <laughs> Instead, God's on my side. <laughs> God's with me. God stands with me. I am at peace with Him. I am at one with Him through Jesus Christ. Therefore, brothers and sisters, there is no condemnation. There is no charge. There is no judgment. Because how can there be charge, condemnation, judgment, and guilt when we have been washed white as snow in the blood of Jesus Christ? When, when God looks at us, He does not look at us as who we are in and of ourselves. But He looks at us through the personal work of Jesus Christ. Covered by the blood. So as we come before God, we don't come before God in and of ourselves. But we come before God covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. And as we come, we come with peace. No wonder, no wonder... Christ said unto His disciples, among the last words that He would speak unto them, toward He gets toward the end of, end of His way in, in John 14, 27. He says, Peace I leave with you, My peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Jesus Christ says, I am leaving you with a peace. And it's just not any kind of peace. It's just not a peace you find here or there. We desire to have peace, a natural peace. There's things that we want. We want to have peace in this nation. There's those type of things that we do long for and look for. But Christ said, this peace I give is far beyond anything this world has. Anything this world has to offer and to give. Because the peace I'm giving you is my peace. <laughs> my peace that I have secured upon my righteousness that I give unto thee that shall stand fast unto eternal life. <laughs> so he says, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. There's so many things in this world that trouble us, that bring fear. Brothers and sisters, in the midst of all of that, know that you're at peace with God. You have a peace as you reside in the kingdom of God of righteousness and peace and joy. <laughs> and joy! God has given us something to rejoice in. <laughs> We're not like those that sat at, the mount, sat at the foot of Mount Sinai who would fear and trembling, quake and tremble before the awesome sight of the Almighty God as He gave His law upon the mount, upon the mount unto Moses. And they sat down there with fear and trembling. They said unto Moses, You talk to God. <laughs> Let us stay way over here somewhere. <laughs> but no, brothers and sisters, there is a joy. Now when the publican and the parable went up to pray, he went before God and he said, God have mercy upon me a sinner. And we cried that out. But oh, what happened? That publican went down what? Justified. 
by the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the publican went down and peace with God through the righteous work of Jesus Christ. The publican went down with great joy because he was righteous in Christ and was at peace with God, having knowing that God had reconciled him to himself by Jesus Christ. So we rejoice. What is it? What does it tell us there in the book of Romans? In the fifth chapter, after having told us that Jesus Christ is raised again for our justification, it says in the fifth verse of fifth chapter, first verse of Romans, it says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's our peace. Being reconciled, but then it says, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of glory. Boy, think about these unsellable truths this morning of all that God has done for you, has done for us as His children, as He has secured for us this kingdom. No wonder that the angel said when they came to the shepherds abiding in the field, I bring you good tidings of great joy. <laughs> Jesus Christ is coming to save sinners from their sins. <laughs> to secure righteousness. To bring you who were at enmity unto peace. Rejoice. <laughs> Rejoice and be exceeding glad. Rejoice. The uh, Lord Jesus Christ told his apostles as they went out. He had sent them out. And they came back and they rejoiced that they had power. And God had given them power over various things. Let's turn over there to that. It's over here in Luke in the 10th chapter. He had had power to saying, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. You know, there's a lot that we can rejoice in in this life. There's many things that we can rejoice. We rejoice to be in church this morning, to be able to sing the songs of Zion, to be able to fellowship with a fellow brother and sisters in Christ. Those are things to rejoice in. These, they had something to rejoice in. But brother and sister, what did Christ say? <laughs> he said, notwithstanding. <laughs> In this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice that your names are written in heaven. <laughs> yeah, you may face all kinds of problems, difficulties, struggles in life. And there may be many great things that happen to you in this life. And you may rejoice. You may have, there's some children of the congregation. You rejoice to see the new more babe come into life. And there's many things that bring us joy. But oh, God says, Christ says, rejoice because your name has been written in heaven. And Jesus Christ has died for you. You're righteous before God. You're at peace with God. So even though in 1 Timothy, 1 Peter tells us, we'll close with this this morning, tells it talks about that we're elect, blessed, begotten again to an inheritance incorruptible, kept by the power of God, wherein ye greatly rejoice. Though <laughs> so now for a season, if need be, you're in heaviness through manifold temptations. 
trials of our faith. But then what does it say in the 8th verse? tells us, remember, the kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Whom having not seen, after talking about the verse there, about <laughs> might be found in the praise and honor and the glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Whom having not seen, ye love. In whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing. Being born again of the Spirit of God. Being given that gift of faith. Your eyes opened up. New creatures in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. By which now you're able to see that that you've not seen. <laughs> and you're able to believe upon that that you have not believed upon. But having that sight, having that belief, then what does it say? You rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Brothers and sisters, and all that you face in this life, and all you may go through, and all the challenges that you may see, and yet even in all the things you may rejoice in in this life, and the many blessings that God pours down upon us, remember the solid foundation, the unassailable truth, that the kingdom of God, into which you have been translated by God, into the kingdom of His Son, that kingdom is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Well, well, well. A great song service and some powerful sound preaching. Hallelujah. And fellowship with the saints of God. Hallelujah. Y'all keep praying for me like you did for Brother David. Brother David, you got me stirred up. I've got a topic I'm going to give you, then kind of get down to it. I want to preach on trust and obey. Trust and obey. And my text is over in Hebrews 11.6. I'm going to read that, then I want to say something before I actually get to preaching. Trust and obey. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please him. He that cometh to God must believe that he is his reward of them that diligently seek him. That's trusting and obeying. And so let me just say something. First of all, David, you did a good job. My friend, if you're born again, you've got the gift of faith that you've got a regeneration. God, when he regenerated you, he gave the, the gift of faith, a precious treasure indeed. Let me give you two or three texts on that. You know a lot of these. For by grace you're saved, through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, that any man should boast. Over in 2 Peter chapter 1, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them who obtain, like precious faith with us, the righteousness of God, our Savior Jesus Christ. That word obtain means given by divine allotment. One Greek dictionary says, like a piece of ripe fruit dropping off your lap. You, you didn't cooperate in getting faith. People say you've got to have faith. You don't just have faith. You've got faith when you're regenerated, then you exercise that. Over in uh, Philippians 1.29, for it is given to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, that's faith, also to suffer for his sake. Let me, i got good news for you. If you've got faith, you'll never lose it. God, Now, you may have some lapses of faith. You'll not have a failure of faith. You know why you won't have a failure of faith? Because Jesus Christ said this over in Luke. When he said, Peter, he said, Satan had desired to have you. He may sift you as wheat. He desires you also. He may not sift you the same way he did Peter. He gave Peter his personal attention. You're going to have some assault of Satan. 
Satan had desired to have you, he may sift you as wheat. I pray for thee, Christ, I pray for thee, that thy faith fail not. Yeah. Did he say, he did he say, if, when thou converted, strengthen thy brethren. Peter, my friend, the devil pulled out every gun he had on Peter, and he gave him, put, wounded him pretty bad. He bounced back, and my friend, that same one who denied Jesus Christ was the one who preached the gospel on the day of Pentecost. When you have had a left of faith, my friend, just get up and ask God to help you and keep on going. Amen. You don't have a lot of reverses in this life. Life is not easy. It never has been easy. My friend, man that is born of woman in a few days and full of troubles. That yea, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. You're going to have mixtures of joy and sorrow, but I guarantee you, your faith will not fail because Jesus Christ prays for you, your faith fail not. And the Bible says He ever lives to make intercession for us. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? Let me tell you this too. You, you really may be doing better than you think you are. Because it said over in 1 John 5, 4, Whatsoever is born of God, overcometh the world. This is the victory, overcometh the world, even your faith. You may not be the big overcomer, but by the faith that God gives you, you're going to be an overcomer. All right, now, y'all keep praying for me now. I'm going to give that text again. Trust and obey. Let me say this. I've been preaching a long time now, about 55 years, ordained. And I guess the thing I've said more than anything else, my wife's here to witness this, I say it almost every sermon, now you get this plain. God never did say, understand me. God said, trust me. I'm going to say it again. God never said, understand me. God said, trust me. A lot of things you don't understand. I don't understand evil in this world. I don't understand injustice in this world. I don't understand terrible things that happen to good people in this world. But my friend, I'm not going to try to figure God out. Don't understand God, but trust God. You may have some things happen to you, you won't believe how bad they'll be. There's all kinds of tragedies that God's people suffer. And they may go crazy trying to figure out why. Don't worry about the why. You just grab a hold of God and you trust God. Don't go by what you don't know. Go by what you do know. Let's talk about what we do know. All right? I may understand why this happened to somebody, but I'll tell you what I do know. God is always good. Y'all believe that? God loves his people with a, with a un, from an everlasting love. Do you believe that? God cares for his people. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Peter said he cares for you. God is touched with the thing you're in front of you. Do you believe that? Yeah. Instead of Hebrew. God, so you say, I'm going through a hard time. God doesn't care. Well, the Bible says he touched the thing you're in front of you. He cares for you. Yeah. Why did he let it happen? I don't know why he's letting it happen. I don't have to worry about that. He's always good. I'll tell you something else about God. You can't figure him out. Don't try it. Over in Isaiah 55, his ways, his thoughts are far above our ways and our thoughts and the heavens are above the earth. So I'm asking God, Lord, I may a lot of bad things happen to me, but please, God, let me never lose my trust in you. You pray the same thing. Sister Lynn Bruce, the dear sister, y'all know David Powell, the sister, who died of cancer, had a 15-year fight with cancer. And she had all kind of operations and all kind of chemotherapy. And I love what Sister Lynn said. She said, God controls every cell of my body, and he's always good. I say, hallelujah. What a great statement. She went through a lot of pain. She trusted God. You may go through some tough times. My friend, you trust God. And laying on his breath, he loves you more than you can imagine. He, you'll understand it by and by. The song says that. We don't understand things right now. We'll understand it by and by. If we could look at things from God's perspective, we'd have a different view on things. Now, I'm going to read my text. And then we're going to go ahead and try to preach a little bit. Ready? In verse 6. Do you want to please God? Do you want to please God? Without faith, it's impossible to please him. Then he gets a definition of faith. He that comes to God must believe that he is. Do you believe he is? Yes. Well, you've got to think about that a little bit. 
if you believe he is, you ought to think about some of his attributes. Okay? Let's think about that. I believe he is. I believe he's omnipotent. He's got all power both in heaven and earth, right? He's omniscient. He knows everything. He knows me better than I know ourselves. The heart's deceitful above all things is definitely wicked. Who can know it? God knows my heart. God knows what I need. God knows what you need today. God knows what you need in the midnight hours of the night when you're grieving. God knows all that. God is omnipotent. He's omniscient. He knows the future. Nothing surprises him. I love our country. I'm glad I'm an American citizen. I hate what's happening to our country today. But my friend, God knows about all that. God knows about all that. He's also my friend. He's omnipresent. Let me say this. Let me tell you what omnipresent means. He can go where you can't go. You have some loved ones you'd like to be with right now, but you can't be there. They're too far away. God is there. i got friends all over this world, my friend. India and Siberia and other places where I've been preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. I can't get right there, but God's already over there. He can go where you can't go. Unless it's, well, I won't go into any more of those attributes. Except maybe love. An unbounded sea of love. Unbounded sea of love. You can't describe God's love. Paul wanted to do that over in the Ephesians letter, chapter 3, that we might know the depth of the height, the width, and the breadth of the love of God that passeth knowledge. He loves you more than you love yourself. Judy loved me a bunch. She lived with me for 54 years. She had to love me. Y'all pray for her. She lived me that long. <laughs> she really needs some prayer. But she, but I, and I love you. But by, God loved me more. She loved me. God loves me. He knows more about me than anybody else, but he loved me. I love that song, the Bill Gaither song. I am loved, you're loved, I can trust loving you. Y'all get to hold that song, it's a good song. He who knows me the most loves me the best. That's impossible. I hate my own self sometimes, I'm such an ungodly sinner. I just like the, like the Apostle Paul, a wretched man that I am, who should live me from the body that's death. That's not an overstatement. Paul was a wretched man in his flesh. I am too all. I, I hate my thoughts sometimes. I hate my left of the face sometimes. I hate my coldness sometimes. I hate my failing God sometimes. And an old man now, I may be the oldest guy here now, I don't know. Kind of a funny feeling. In most places, I am the oldest guy around. But I'm going to tell you, my friend, you kids listen to me. You young people listen to me. The sins that bother me, just as much as the ones I've committed, is the things I've done I shouldn't have done. I mean, the things I wish I'd done I hadn't done. You need to plan your life out right now. You start reading God's Word now. Don't wait you get to the, you're almost dead, so I think I'll start reading the Bible. Get in there right now every day. You start memorizing Scripture every day. You start praying every day. You start worshiping God. You start serving God's people every day. The things I wish I'd done bother me as much as the things I've done I shouldn't have done. So I'm giving you a little warning. You take heed, you'll be glad one of these days that you listen to that. Now let's get in a little bit to the chapter of Hebrews. Without faith, it's still possible to please him. He that cometh to God must believe that he is. He is a reward of them that diligently seek him. It's worth serving God. The devil's a liar. He'll tell you it's not worth serving God. You may, you may go a while or have a cold period, or things don't happen like you want them to. Your church is not properly like you want it to. And the devil says, hey, that ain't worth serving God. He's a stinking liar. The Bible says he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Now, what I'm going to do is go to Hebrews 11 here where we're at and read a few verses. And I'm gonna, this is suggested preaching. You can preach your own sermons if I get through here if you read that entire 11th chapter of Hebrews. Let's begin to read that in chapter 1. Without faith, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is real. There's some substance to it. It's real. You got to go here regenerated. God gave it to you sovereignly. He gives regenerating grace, faith every one of his children. For by it the elders obtained a good report. I don't think those elders were all the ones here in Hebrews 11. 
You'll get a good report through faith. Let me, I get some good news for you. You already made something about this, David. You made something to trigger me on this. You read Hebrews 11. They had people in there. Some of them had harder times than others. Some people had different trials than others. But all of my friends got a good report with faith. Because God leaned the righteous to the Christ. And let me tell you, this is good news. You want this good news? Put your seatbelts on. There's not one negative word spoken about anybody in Hebrews 11. Even though they did some bad stuff. Noah got drunk once. Abraham lied about let his wife in another man's harem twice. You know what I'm talking about? Sarah laughed in unbelief. You won't find that in Hebrews 11. They're covered by the blood. And my friend, you're covered by the blood. So I'm not saying live a licentious life. That's ungodly. We must not say, let us sin that grace may abound. God forbid. But I tell you what, my friend, you're covered by the blood of Hebrews 11. I got another good news for you. The high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. Jesus Christ is praying for his people. He's interceding for his people. It's an example of what he's doing right now by the throne of God. You want some good news? There's not one word negatively spoken about any of his children in Hebrews 17. I mean, John 17. That means right now when Christ is interceding with God, he doesn't say anything bad about you. You know why? Why the devil says he sinned. I paid for sin. He did that. I paid for that. Now, well, shut up, David. I paid for all of them. You've got boldness that comes to the throne of grace. Let's read a little bit now. Now, what do, faith, let me tell you what faith, faith believes God's word. We don't just manufacture something like the charismatics say. We don't just, I just might be a pink Cadillac if I have enough faith. You don't do that. But my friend, what faith does, it believes God's word. Because I'm going to tell you what, when God regenerated you, you know what he did? It's a great thing. You've got something in you that's precious. When God regenerated you, he wrote the same truth in this Bible on your heart. That's why when you get to church sometimes and hear a sermon and you say amen or something in my gut, to say amen to that because the Word of God is written in your heart of the Holy Ghost. Sometimes I think sometimes maybe I'm not born again. I get so mean and cold and I go to church and I hear a sermon and I hear like I did today with old David Coffin. You all be glad, my friend, that old Christopher put a time limit on us. There's enough stuff in what he said to preach four or five hours. I, and it, we, 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 we'd be well spent too. We ain't going to do it. My friend, faith believes God's word. You cannot believe God's word if you didn't have faith. Look at what he says over here in verse 3. Through faith, we understand the world's refrain, but the word of God, so that things reformed were not made of things which do, do appear. You know what that means? God made this world out of nothing. Evolution is a big, fat lie, an ungodly lie. Now, I'm, there's some good scientists that believe in creation. I'm glad we got them. People like Henry Morrison, Ken Ham, and others. And I'm glad what they're doing. But that's not really why I believe that God made this world. I believe because I believe the book of Genesis. Don't you? Because through faith we understand the world made the word of God. That's what did it. This also stuff make it help a little bit. All right, let's keep going. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, which he obtained. What is he righteous? Uh, God testified his gifts by he being dead yet speaketh. It didn't say faith made him righteous. It said faith testified he is righteous. There's a whole sermon in that. By faith, Enoch uh, was translated, he should not see death, was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony, he pleased God. Then our text, I'll read again. And now I'm not going to go too much further. I'm just going to go sampling of Hebrews 11. I hope it'll whet your appetite. Get fully into Hebrews 11. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. He that comes to God must believe that he is. He did reward of him that you seek him. Trust and obey. That's the whole thing. Trust God and obey God. Let's look at some of these characters in Hebrews 11 here. 
There's a sampling here of people who went through various trials. Some of them had it easier than others. Some of them died martyrs' deaths. Isaiah was sawn asunder. How about that? Get cut in two by a saw. My friend, some people were tortured and all that kind of thing. The men, and all of them, like today, of whom the world's not worthy. My friend, you're the, if you're a true Christian, you're the best asset our country's got. You know that? The world's not worthy. The people may blaspheme Christianity. They may call it homophobes. They may call it all kinds of things. We're the most valuable resource this country's got. Like in Sodom and Gomorrah. Had there been ten righteous people there, God has spared the city for their sake. The best way you can be a good citizen is be a good Christian. And my friend, you may have some saving influence on this country we live in. A lot more important than even politics. Look at old Noah. By faith, Noah, being warned of God, of things not seen as yet, Move with fear. That's godly fear. Prepared an ark to save him his house, which he condemned the world, became heirs of righteousness, which is by faith. All right, what did Noah do? He obeyed God. He trusted God. He had never seen it rain. My friend, the water, world was watered by dew. Read over Genesis. Never seen it rain. God said, you, you build me an ark. Why? Why build an ark? You just built it because I told you to. And he obeyed God for 120 years he built an ark. You've got to hang out for a long time sometimes. Just do what God said do whether you see a result or not. I bet he was really glad, my friend, when that boy rain came, he had done that. He'd been up a creek if he had just said, well, oh, well, there's been more to creek with it. <laughs> my friend, he obeyed God. Hallelujah, he obeyed God. You need to obey God. Why? God, I didn't ask you why. I said, you built an ark. He did. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after uh, received from inheritance, obeyed. He went out, not knowing where he went. God doesn't always show you what your future is going to be like. I guarantee you, your future is not going to be like you think it is. We ought to plan our futures out. You young people plan your futures. You want to get married someday. You want to get an education. You want to get a certain kind of job. And that's good to do that. But God, will, he may red pencil your life. We've got to be flexible. God's not put in a box. God knows what kind of life he wants you to live. We need to be flexible. And when we have a disappointment, don't drive, let it drive you crazy. Say, God, what are you teaching me, Lord? Not my way, but thine be done. He, went, he, he didn't know where he was going. Abraham, go. Where are you going? I, you just go. Just go. That's what you've got to do. By faith he sojourned Atlanta Promise as a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac uh, and Jacob, the heirs of him are the same promise. Oh, I love this. You're here now, friends. Listen to this. This is Old Testament stuff. You're in a better situation and New Testament stuff. Get this. He looked for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. What are you looking for? That's what I'm looking for. I want to go to that city, my friend, that New Jerusalem, that has foundations, whose builder and maker is of God, that permanent place of tremendous joy. Don't you want to go there? That's what I'm looking for. Some people say if you're too heavenly minded to be of any earthly worth, that's a false statement. The most heavenly minded people do the best in this whole world. Couldn't have been more worldly minded than the Apostle Paul. He suffered a lot, but rather, he did a lot of good. When you're truly heavenly minded, you do a lot of good. You're motivated. But this world's not your home. You don't sink your roots in too deep. Through faith, well, I'm going to skip some, some here. I've just got to pick a few verses. Let's go down to verse 13. You talk about a powerful verse, 13 here. David, God preached through you. I'm not bragging on you, but you fed my soul. Man, I remember that for a long time, 14, 17. 
righteousness and joy and peace. Hallelujah. These all died in faith. Not having received the promises. We haven't received the promises either. The New Testament promises. We've been promised, listen, in hope of eternal life, which God, that cannot lie, promised before the world began. I haven't seen it yet. These all died in faith, not having received the promises. But had, now there's four verbs here. Having seen them afar off, they saw them by faith. We're persuaded of them. How about that? Embrace them. Then confess their stranger and pilgrim on the earth. That'd be a good four-point sermon, wouldn't it? They saw them. They were persuaded of them. They embraced them. They confessed their stranger and pilgrims. You need to get in the Word of God, folks, and chew on stuff like David did. They chew on the Scriptures. Don't just read it real fast, like Romans 14, 17. Chew on that stuff. I like to chew a good steak, don't y'all? I chew those things, man, that just fall apart by mouth. I like a little fat on mine. My friend, get the Word of God and chew on that. Get you a verse and you grab a hold of that thing and say, Holy Ghost, help me open my eyes. I may behold the Word of the thy law. Feed my soul with this wonderful nutrient from the Word of God. All right. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. That's where I believe you're at. That's you ain't you ought to get there. And truly, well, I won't read all of that. I'm going to read verse 16. I'll have to pick my places. But now they desire a better country and heavenly. Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. He has prepared for them a city. Now let me say you this also. I'm going to say, tell you this. You may have to endure some of the worst challenges you've ever had when you get to be old. Abraham had to do that. He walked with God, ups and downs, maybe ups. But at the very end of his life, he had to pass a terrible trial. God said, I want you to go kill Isaac. And he did. He would have. He really killed him in his own mind. He, he, he thought God was going to raise Isaac to the dead. Because God had promised that to his seed. But so, old folks, you hurt pretty bad. I'm not what I used to be. I got this large print Bible. I'm not, I have to walk up, kind of watch it. Sometimes at Great Chapel, they pray I'm falling down, getting in the pulpit. I'm not that wicked yet. They just think I am. <laughs> the outward man's perishing. So you may suffer some terrible trial, but I'm telling you one thing. Your inward man is renewed day by day. Amen. Day by day. You get closer to home. Sprint out to the finish line. Amen. Keep your eyes on Jesus Christ, who the joy that set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, sat down at the right hand of God. Now, let's just go on a little bit further, and I'm going to quit here in a minute. Oh, Chris, we're proud of me here. Uh, man, I love this one. Oh, let's look at Moses a little bit. Wonderful thing about Moses. Let's look at verse 23. By faith, Moses, he had born, was hid three months of his parents, because they saw he had a proper child, and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. By faith, Moses, when he has come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now, he had a plush position, being number two, evidently. Old Josephus says he really had a mighty life there, led the armies of Pharaoh, had all kinds of luxuries and stuff like that. He refused, my friend, to enjoy those because he had faith. Let's keep reading. Choosing, rather, to suffer affliction. What a dumb choice, people say. Smart choice he ever made. The dumb choice would have been to enjoy the pleasure of sin for a season. That's a bad, bad choice, folks. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God to enjoy the pleasure of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ, the reproach of Christ, which we may have to face some of that in our country. They're getting anti-Christian increasingly so, aren't they? 
esteeming the riches of Christ greater riches, the reproach of Christ greater than the riches of uh, the greater riches of the treasure of Egypt, for he had respected the recompense of the reward. In other words, he knew payday someday. But I love the rest of this. Let's read the rest of this. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. Now here's what I'm going to close on this one. He endured as seeing him who is invincible. That's what you've got to do. You haven't seen Jesus Christ face to face yet, but like the verse you quoted from Peter 1.8 over there, 2 Peter 1.8, who had he not seen, I have not seen him. Sometimes when I read this verse, I just get a catch in my throat. Who had he not seen you love? Yes, I love him. Hallelujah. Who had he not seen you love? Whom, though, even though you see him not yet believing, faith, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. And I close with one quotation. The old David got me stirred up again about that joy. That joy. Let's quote the last two verses of Jude if I can get them. I might have to read it. I better just read it. Make sure I don't mess them up. Now to him that's able to keep you from falling. To bring you faultless for the throne of his glory with exceeding joy. Exceeding joy. The only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty. Dominion and power both now and ever all men. Exceeding joy. When you see Jesus Christ, you don't know what happiness he looks like. You take the happiest you've ever been, multiply it by 10 trillion times, that might get a little bit of it. My friend, standing before, listen, someday, because of that justifying righteousness that Brother David preached about, get this now, your seatbelt on again. You will face Jesus Christ, the Holy Jesus Christ, with a clean conscience. How about that one? This is the Word of God found in 2 Peter, chapter 1, starting with verse 16 and reading to verse 21. 2 Peter, chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice, which came from heaven, we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, Whereunto you do well that you take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost." Thank God for the good preaching that's gone before. Please do continue in prayer. I want to concentrate my remarks on the first phrase in verse 19. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. More sure sets up a comparison. It means something that's reliable, it's sure, and then something that's even more reliable. It's more sure. What are the two things 
that the Apostle Peter are comparing here. One thing that he's comparing was very sure he wasn't following a cunningly devised fable or a cleverly assembled fairy tale. That's not what he was doing. He said, I saw this. I went up and he had Peter and he had uh, James and John. The Lord brought Peter and James and John up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And they saw the Lord who ordinarily as he walked with them, there was, he had no form or comeliness. There's no beauty about him that they should desire him. He's just a plain looking man. But God just opened up the window a little bit and let them see a little more of his glory. And it was overwhelming. It was just overwhelming, shining as bright as the noonday sun, speaking with Moses and Elijah about his decease, which he should accomplish in Jerusalem. What a vision that was. And it wasn't something he made up. It wasn't something that he cooked up in his mind, thought, wow, people will think I'm a real religious leader. If I've... It was something he saw. He was sure about it. And he was coming down to the home stretch here. He said, I must shortly put off this, my tabernacle. That means I'll probably be dying soon. He was still sure about it. But he said, as sure as I am of that, having been an eyewitness, we've got something even more sure. More sure than direct eyewitness account. What's on my mind this after, well, this morning is uh, information. We live in an age where there's a lot of information. I mean, consider how the human race, there was word of mouth, and then there was engravings and hieroglyphics, and then there was alphabetic languages, and then there was a printing press, all of a sudden an abundant leap in information available to people. And then you had the telephone, the television. Now you've got the Internet. You've got all kind of digital information. Now you have information that has its origin not only from other human beings. You've got what's called artificial intelligence that combines a lot. We have a lot of information in the day that we live. What's the most reliable information? We need to ask ourselves seriously that question. And I want to give four different categories that I've thought about and see what the Bible teaches on what's the most reliable. One category is the Scripture. Right here. A more sure word of prophecy. Now, am I taking too big a leap to say that Scripture? I don't think so. Look at the context. He says we have also a more sure word of prophecy. And then the next verse says, knowing this, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. That's what he's talking about. Peter's talking about Scripture. That's one source of information. Let me tell you a source of information a child of God has, one that's been born again, that not everybody has, and that is direct revelation from God. God does. He's throughout history, and even now God still does speak to the hearts and minds of His people. He can communicate that way. Just lead them in individual manners. Uh, we find that in the Bible, even in the New Testament age. Remember what the Holy Spirit said to Philip 
when he was in the wilderness near Gaza and he encounters this chariot over there, the Holy Spirit spoke to him and said, go join yourself to this chariot. Now, is that something everybody should do? Should we all go to Gaza and look for a chariot and rush it? No, this is something God communicated individually as to Philip as one of his children to do. So there's that kind of information. Next category of information I want to consider is information that comes from people who have proven their love to you over a long period of time. Now you get that. You know that, and I want to go to a scripture about that. And then the fourth category of information I want to talk about is just information that comes from everybody else. Not those categories. Not scripture. It's not direct revelation of God to your mind and heart. It's not something that's coming from somebody that's proven their love for you over a long period of time. It's everybody else. If you want to subdivide that, you can. There's Everybody else includes some people that have a lot of credentials and license and degrees and education and folks that don't have so many. If you want to make some distinctions in there, I'll say, go ahead, but watch out. We live in a time when the information is so abundant that you've got to watch out for putting too much emphasis on credentials. In this nation right now, We've got some people that hold uh, uh, legal license and medical license and some folks that hold professor's positions and some folks that hold political office. And some of those folks are good folks trying to do the best they can. Some of them, brothers and sisters, are proven faults. And you've got to watch out just because somebody's got counselor or doctor or your honor or, you know, professor in front of their name doesn't mean that the information they're giving you is good. And I say that to young people. I want you to consider all the different data that's coming at you right now and think of those four categories. Think of Scripture. Think of God speaking in your heart. Think of things told you by people who love you and have proven their love to you over a long time. And then think about everybody else. See, what does the Bible say is the highest order of reliability? Well, Peter just said here, as wonderful and glorious and sure as that experience I had on the Mount of Transfiguration, the Bible's more sure. Amen. See, that that was happened on the Mount of Transfiguration happened for three men, Peter, James, and John. And we know about it secondhand, but how do we know it's sure? God inspired it to be put down in the Scripture. So, there's, so that, you know, Peter can do that and years later he's remember it and everything. But Peter could go back and read the Scripture himself over and over and over again. And so can you. Because, brothers and sisters, the God who's powerful enough to inspire holy men of old, to speak as they were moved by the Holy Ghost, is mighty enough to preserve His Word, and He has. You say, well, there's a lot of translations. What about those lost Gospels? What about the book of Enoch? What about the Gospel of Thomas? What about the books the Bible refers to that are not there? Brothers and sisters, they're not inspired. If you want to know what's inspired, it's the Bible in the original languages as compiled by the church in the first century and as has survived 
through the centuries. And in the English translation, it's this book I've got in my hand. This is the most reliable information that exists. It's flawless. It's infallible. You can count on it. It's more sure than any other information. Now, does God speak directly to your heart and mind? Yes, child of God, from time to time He does. You may have experienced it. God's prompting you to do something. And uh, like I said, spoke to Philip, go join yourself to this chariot. How many other occasions can you think of? Remember when Paul couldn't preach in Turkey or Asia? And then he had a dream. man from Macedonia saying, come over and help us. See, that kind of thing happened in the book of Acts. I think it happens today. But here's what you've got to watch out for. Not only can God speak to your mind and heart directly, so can the servants of the devil. Now, I don't think they can read your mind. God can do that, too. I don't think the devil can read your mind, but he can certainly put thoughts in your mind. Let me give you a stupid example. A man today might say, you know... I'm feeling prompted to increase my family. And, you know, even when David was on the run, he had two wives. He had, uh, he had uh, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitist, and Abigail, the Carmelitist. And, you know, David was man after God's own heart. Maybe I need a second wife. Well, you know, Solomon had 700. Don't think I can afford that, but maybe, uh, you know... That Bible example, why does the written Scripture tell us that's wrong? Think of how Jesus Christ described marriage. In the beginning it was not so. For he that made them, made them male and female, and said, they twain shall be one flesh. What God hath therefore, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and cleave unto his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. What therefore God hath joined, let not man put asunder. There's all kind of teaching in that. First he made them male and female. That's a truth in and of itself. But I, I want you to comment. What does twain mean? Two. Two. Does anybody know what the pen name Mark Twain meant? It meant two fathoms. A fathom, six feet of water. Two fathoms, 12 feet of water. You've got enough to navigate your riverboat. But when we look at Scripture... It says the man and woman in marriage are two, not three, not five, not 701, two. And so all of a sudden, whatever you think maybe God's leading you, you bring it to the more sure source of information, and you know this is not God speaking to me. You say, well, okay, what if I feel prompted to do something and I'm studying and praying and ask God to shine the light on His Word just like Brother Zach preached and everything, and I'm going through it and I'm searching and I'm not finding anything to contradict it or anything, uh, then, then go ahead and proceed until you either find something that contradicts it. Just ask God, keep leading me. I want to trust. I want to obey. I, and I'll, and if, if this is not thy leadership, Lord... Let me know and I will stop. Just go ahead because that is a wonderful thing. That's what Peter and James and John experienced. Now, let's drop to the third. The first level of information is the Bible. The second, God leads you as an individual. 
in your heart and your mind. The third, brothers and sisters, information that comes from people who have proven their love for you over a long time should receive a priority. Let's go to 2 Timothy, where Paul is writing to his young friend Timothy here. And he says this, talks about Janus and Jambres, the magicians that uh, tried to persuade Pharaoh not to listen to Moses. And he says in 2 Timothy 3, starting with verse 9, But they shall proceed no further, for their folly shall be manifest unto all men, as theirs also was. But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. He's saying, Timothy, there's all kind of things, and in the last days evil men are going to wax worse and worse, but Timothy, you know what my life's been about. Uh, You know my doctrine, you know my teaching, you know my purpose, what I was hoping to achieve, you know the hardships I encountered, you know the persecutions. You even know what I ran into in Antioch. There was a lot of argument. You knew what I ran into in Iconium. There was like a riot where I was thrown out of town. You know what I ran into at Lystra. I was stoned and left for dead. You know about all this, Timothy. You've been with me a long time. You know me. You know the love that God has loved me with and the love that I've loved Him with. And you know what I've stood for. It's been many years. Brothers and sisters, when somebody communicates that kind of love over a long time, it doesn't mean they're always right. It means you need to give them priority over... Young folks... You may run into some very bright, articulate teachers in the course of your education. Take advantage of what they learn, but let me caution you with this. If your teacher says one thing and your parent says another, give your parent more influence. If your parent has over and over again proven their love for you, changed your diapers, fed you, clothed you, housed you, faithfully chastised you, and yet shown you kindness and encouragement, they deserve more attention than the brightest professor in the best university. They deserve more attention than the most influential culture leader on a music stage or on a movie screen. They deserve your attention because over and over and over again, they've proven their love for you. Over and over and over again, Paul proved his love to Timothy. And he said, Timothy, you know, this is a warning throughout Scripture. Paul warned the elders at Miletus. He says, for I know after my departure, grievous wolves shall come in among you, not sparing the flock. There's going to be a lot of information. There's going to be a lot of influence. Give the Bible top place. Be guided by God in your heart and your mind. Then listen to those that love you. And then everybody else, use those better source of information to sort through it. Yeah, you're going to get some good, good true things from that bottom category. But you, you, you weigh them against 
the information that's coming from the Bible, from the Lord, and from your loved ones. So here Peter says, we've not followed cunningly devised fables. We, we, what we're telling you, and here I'm trying to get you to remember before I die, I'm trying to stir up your, your pure mind by way of remembrance. I'm trying to endeavor that you'll always have these things in remembrance. He says, these things are true. We've not followed cunningly devised fables. Isn't that what Western culture is trying to tell you about the Bible right now? It's just a cleverly assembled fairy tale, is what they're saying. And uh, you really can't count on that, can't make decisions. Brothers and sisters, that's one of those lies. Let me tell you why some abundant evidence, I mean, there's a lot of evidence in the Scripture. You can go to where the Scripture speaks historically and geographically. It's accurate. As a matter of fact, there's no timeline in human secular history that goes back prior to 500 B.C. This goes back beyond 4,000 B.C. Connected timelines of somebody that begat somebody and the reigns of kings and all of that. It's the most amazing history book in the world. It's accurate when it speaks of geography, even changing geography. When the Bible speaks scientifically, it's accurate. It's not a science book, but when it speaks scientifically on the laws of quarantine, antiseptic practice, clean and unclean foods, things like that, the Bible is scientifically accurate. should be if it's inspired by the Creator, and it is. There's... Hundreds and hundreds of fulfilled prophecies in the Bible. And it all points to our Savior, Jesus Christ. There's the central message of the Bible. The Lord Jesus Christ came down and was made to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And to realize that righteousness and to then have that peace with God and rejoice in thanksgiving for God giving us that righteousness and reconciliation with Him. There's the message of the Gospel. Jesus Christ Himself said, Search you the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they that testify of Me. The work of eternal life, of election, of redemption at the cross, of regeneration or the new birth is done by God sovereignly and alone and there is no failure to it. When God speaks, and I'm not talking about what He reveals to you as He did to Philip or as to Paul, but when God speaks in regeneration to cause somebody to be born again, it is 100% successful. It says so in the Old Testament. God says, For as the rain cometh down from heaven, or the snow cometh down from heaven, and watereth the earth, and giveth bread to the eater, and seed to the sower, even so shall my word be that cometh forth from my mouth. It shall not return unto me void. It shall accomplish that to which I purpose it. When God speaks in that creative voice to give life to the dead, somebody that's dead and trespasses and sins comes alive in Jesus Christ. They cannot refuse it. They cannot accept it. It's a work of creation. No more than when God said, let there be light, light could say, I think I'll just stay dark. Or when Jesus Christ said, Lazarus, come forth, Lazarus say, I think I'll just stay here and consider the proposition. That's not the way regeneration works. God says, live, and his child lives. And it says so in the New Testament. 
The Lord Jesus Christ said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. So is this a cunningly devised fable? Well, in addition to the historical, geographic, scientific, and prophetic accuracy, one of the things that so impresses me about the inspiration and the truth of Scripture is its honesty. You know, just what if we put ourselves in the skeptic's shoes? Yeah, what's claimed here is that, is, and you know, some people even question whether or not Jesus Christ existed. That's in, a, in addition to scriptures, in a bunch of secular histories, you'll find it in Josephus. I believe you'll find it in Tacitus and, and in Suetonius. There's a bunch of that says that he died, and some of them even mention that he was uh, executed under the reign or under the governorship of Pontius Pilate. That shouldn't even be questioned. The big question is, did he rise from the dead? Yes, he did. And there's multiple prophecies on that that were fulfilled. But just consider this. In addition to all the prophecies that were fulfilled, why would men like Peter and James and John, having made a cleverly assembled fairy tale and having stolen the body, why would they go forth and promote this? And James was killed by the sword of Herod's men. And John was exiled on the island of Patmos. And Peter was thrown into prison. Why would people go to prison and death for something they knew to be a lie? And the plain logical answer is they would not. The plain logical truth is James went to his death and John went to his exile and Peter went to prison because they knew the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ was a fact. They had seen him rise from the dead. They had handled him. They had eaten with him. They had talked with him. They knew it was true and that the conqueror of death left them nothing to fear about death. They knew it was so. And so Peter says, we've not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here Peter, close to the end of his days, he's, he's writing about this. But one of the strange things about writing is not only was he willing to suffer for it, he actually as a leader of the church, and James is a leader of the church, and John is a leader of the church, they let folks write down scriptures telling about times they messed up. Think about that. Peter, there was the gospel being written telling about the time when the Lord Jesus Christ said, I'm going to be crucified and I'm going to be taken by the uh, arrested and taken on trial, crucified by the Gentiles and rise again on the third day. Remember what Peter said? Not so, Lord. This shall not be so unto thee. And remember what the Lord said? Get thee behind me, Satan. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. Do you think if Peter was running this, this process of, of the gospel, and James and John, do you think they'd let them put that in the text? What about later, where James and John are arguing about, can we sit on the left and right hand? of you when you come into your kingdom. Oh, and we're even going to get our mom to come ask for us. <laughs> Mama, go ask him if we can have the best places in the kingdom. And, of course, the rest of the disciples didn't like that much. 
but they did. Well, what about James and John? They come to a Samaritan town, and the Lord's face is set as if it will go to Jerusalem. What what did James and John come to him? Lord, will you let us call down fire from heaven like Elijah did and burn up this town? The Lord just, you know not what manner of spirit you are. (laughs) For the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And then finally, the night he's arrested, Peter denies him not once. But three times. Even after the day of Pentecost, one time Paul even had to rebuke Peter. Why? They were all at Antioch and Peter was having a great old time having lunch with the Gentiles. But some of the Jews came from James in Jerusalem and all of a sudden he thought, maybe I better go sit with the Jewish brethren. And it started causing a division in the church. Now, brothers and sisters, shall we take the honestly recorded lapses of Peter and James and John and says, that's it, their ministry's no good. Take first and second Peter out of the Bible. Take first, second, and third John. Take the Gospel of John. Take Revelation out of the Bible. Those fellas just... No, take it this way. Something as honest and as candid as this, where the inspiration of the Holy Ghost caused them to write down not only the marvelous things that God enabled these men to do, but even the times that they stumbled. That's just one more mark that Peter wasn't following cunningly devised fables. He was an eyewitness of the glory of Jesus Christ. And he, as well as you and I, we have a more sure word of prophecy. We do well to take heed. That means we're doing good if we pay attention. As a light that shineth in a dark place. Would you agree with me? Our current culture is a dark place. We need light more than ever. We need that light. Until what? Until the day dawn, Jesus Christ is coming back. And the day star arise in your heart. Jesus Christ is in your heart by regeneration. And so there's going to be light coming from above. And light coming from within. And all of God's children gathered in the presence of the living God and not one missing because of the successful victory of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. May God bless you. Well, it's good to be with you again. You can be turning in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians in chapter 7. You know, I'm grateful that we live in a country that's free. Though, every generation has to fight to maintain that freedom, right? Well, I'd like to bring you a message today along those lines. You've got to keep fighting to maintain your freedom. I'd like to title this, A Notorious Repentance. I was having a conversation with uh, several people out of camp. One of my favorite things is to go around and ask people, uh, you know, what's, what's one of the most important things the Lord's taught you this year? Or maybe, what, you know, what's the best book that you've read this year? And so I kind of write those th- things down. And as I was uh, talking to one man out there, uh, just referring back in history, there was a time when a person had sinned a great sin. And uh, a wise preacher came along and said, let him be restored when his repentance is as notorious as his sin which made me immediately start thinking about this chapter here in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 
because I was stirred up a few years ago uh, going through seasons of ups and downs like we all do, seasons of sin, that uh, I needed to go deeper. And I needed to go back to what the Scripture says about repentance. And, uh, and so I, I went through this, and I just want to bring some thoughts to you this afternoon from this first verse here in parts of this chapter. So 2 Corinthians chapter 7, this is the Word of the Lord. Having therefore these promises dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness and the fear of God. Let us pray. Father, we are so grateful for Your Word. Lord, I just pray this day that You would let us not go out the same way we came in today. Lord, let us be changed. Lord, continue to work in us that great work that You are performing, preparing us for the day when we will be separated from this body. So Lord, I just pray, bless these words in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I'd just like to take a look at three things. First is, you will use these promises here, having therefore these promises dearly beloved, you will use these promises to cleanse yourself. And start out there. And let's just talk about the promises here. So having therefore these promises dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness and the fear of God. So what are these promises that he is speaking to us about? Well, we've got a couple here and we've got a whole book full of them, right? So if we just look back in verse 16, he says, For you are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wow. That He will be our God and, and walk in us and dwell in us. That we are this spiritual temple with the very Shekinah glory dwelling in us to comfort us, to love us, to afflict us, to help us along this way of life that we are walking. And he goes on and says, Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate. So there's a message of separation here. He's talking to these Corinthians here who had a man that was in the church that was in sin. And he writes that first letter and says, you got to separate from that man. And that separation led to his repentance. The second letter he says, restore him. Restore him. And he's going through here and he's teaching this church, we live in this world where the world clings to us. And we've got to separate from it. And the message is, that's a daily thing that we have to do. It's a daily thing we have to do. So what he goes on in verse 17 and says, Be ye separate, saith the Lord, touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. Here's another promise for you. I will receive you. And this is the King of all glory receiving us. Has anybody been received by King Charles? Has anybody been received by a president or a governor? I never have. Well, here, the King receives you. I will receive you. And not just that, but I will be a father unto you. 
And ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Now, there's some great promises. So having these promises, that God says He's going to be our Father. He's going to dwell in us. He's going to receive us. We are to be cleansing ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh. Peter would call these promises, these promises are motivation. These promises are that by which we are partakers of the divine nature. We are given these exceeding precious promises there in 2 Peter 1.4. And we're also given another promise. You know, we've got all these great promises to make it through this life that we can stand on. And then we have the promise of a new heavens and a new earth. Heard a little bit about that this morning, right? That new Jerusalem, a world whereby we are headed, a world where your heart's desire will finally be fulfilled. I know it's fulfilled. There's a sense now where, yes, we have tasted and seen Christ. But there's going to be a perfection of that coming one day. And uh, again... One of my favorite parts of C.S. Lewis is he said, if my heart is not satisfied here, right? And he's all, we're always looking, you know, time to time, we, we try to find satisfaction in other things. It's not to be had for the believer. So if my heart doesn't find that complete, perfect satisfaction in this world, that must mean that I was made for another world. And these promises are given us to sustain us until we get there. These promises are the promises that are motivation to go deep in our repentance, to cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. For we shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Paul would tell us in 2 Corinthians 5.10. And so having these promises, we are perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Do you ever wonder how many promise rings have been returned? Do you ever wonder how many promises have been broken? I was doing some research for another message. They, uh, there's a think tank that looked up peace treaties. I wonder how many peace treaties have been broken. This one particular article said 250,000, and most of them were ineffective. But we have a peace treaty that's sure. The God of peace sent the Prince of Peace, and the Prince of Peace sent the Spirit of Peace into your soul to seal the deal. These are the precious promises we have. These are the promises that can never be broken. The God that can never lie. And such promises like this motivate us to action. And so secondly, just to think a little bit about, you will be separating daily. This is active here when he says, let us cleanse ourselves. That's always active. Every time you read that verb, it's going to be active. Which means, because this is the eternal Word of God, you're to always be active. Cleansing yourselves. Cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. Make yourselves clean. It has the idea of being free from defilement. Free from wickedness. Free from guilt. And there's the idea in this word too, cleanse ourselves, that we're doing this 
for a dedication and a consecration. Cleanse yourself from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit in order to dedicate this living temple unto the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Therefore, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you lay down your bodies a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. And one of the ways that we have to cleanse ourselves daily is by the renewing of our mind. Not conforming, but transforming. And that's a work that's in progress right now. I heard a, uh, a brother say, uh, I, I read it, it was a, a, a sermon I was reading, and he said, every time that we come and present ourselves a living sacrifice in the worship, like this afternoon, when we present ourselves, this Lord is doing something in us even when we can't perceive it. That was encouraging to me. Because there's times I come to the afternoon service and I eat too much dessert. And there, there's time I come in here where, where the flesh is willing, right? Where the, I got that backward, didn't I? Where the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. See? Too much dessert. But when we do come and present ourselves like this, the Lord is working in us. He's working a good work. And He's going to finish that work. He's going to finish that work. So be encouraged that sometimes our feelings run astray. And even when it don't feel like it, the Lord is still loving us and working in us. And so, brothers and sisters, this promises are given to us that we might be cleansing ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, that we would be taking action. And there is a cleansing both of flesh and spirit. One of the ways that we do this is how? Our daily prayer, our repentance. Use the Psalms. Use Psalm David, the Psalms of David, 51.10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit. I was reading in history, Cranmer and Ridley were being burned at the stake because they refused to submit to transubstantiation. They believed Jesus Christ's sacrifice was sufficient once and for all. And they refused to participate in that. And they were burned at the stake. And these were two holy men of God standing on the Word of God. And while they were being burned, they were reciting Psalms 51. Isn't that a great story? Yeah. Hallelujah. Creating me a clean heart. They were even preaching that to the day of their death because they knew what they were apart from Jesus Christ. How shall a young man cleanse his way? How are we to be doing this? Psalm 119.9. How does a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereunto God's Word. This is the Word of truth. We are to be doing this regularly. Brothers and sisters, we live in a generation, Proverbs 30 and verse 12, there is a generation, and we live in this generation that is pure in their own eyes and yet is not washed from its filthiness. Day by day, we see uh, things going on that who would have ever imagined, right? And yet, I will tell you that the kingdom of darkness waxes worse and worse, and the kingdom of light gets better and better. And there's always going to be the war. The war in you, and the war with the world, and the war in our minds, and we've got to keep fighting the good fight of faith. And this... Daily separation, this notorious repentance is something we've got to keep doing. We've got to keep, repentance in a one-time thing, right? 
It's a disposition of God's elect. It is a disposition of those that love Christ. We are always turning from this to this. We are always making 180 degrees. Every day we got to get up. I heard one pastor say one time, when I get up every day, Satan's sitting right on my chest, and I've got to be saved all over again. That's the way he felt. Every day is a day of fighting that fight. It's a disposition of taking every thought captive, of standing on the Word of truth, with all the information coming at us, which we heard about this morning, right? We have, and, and I tell you, you, gotta, you, gotta, you only have so much capacity. Use your prime capacity in the prime of your day. If you're a morning person, in this in the morning. If you're a night person, in this at night before you go to bed. That will keep you from a multitude of lies and deception and deceit. Deceit is all around us. And brothers and sisters, the meaning of that word deceit means when it happens to you, you don't know it's happening. And that's why God gave you each other to love each other, to go around and say, brother, you're being deceived. You need to turn away from that. These people were given to you to love you, to help you, because we all don't know everything. And one of the ways that we do this is daily repenting, listening to those God puts in our life. As long as they're speaking according to this Word, we need to listen to them. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now let's look at the third part of that. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So we've got these perfect promises. We've got this new creation God has created in us. And that results in us cleansing, washing, perfecting holiness. So this perfecting holiness is active again. It has the idea... Of to bring to an end. It has the idea of taking this task upon yourself. It means to execute. It's like someone is the executor of a will. They execute the legal requirements of that will. We're taking God's Word and we're executing that in our life cleansing ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. It has the idea of to complete. And, and I think here in this chapter we see what that looks like. So having these promises, he said, cleanse yourself. I'm going to jump now to verse 8 now. And then I'm going to look at the details in 10 and 11, which I think gives us the how. How do we do this? Paul wrote this letter. He, he said, For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I did repent. Paul wrote him this letter. He said, I, I wrote you this letter, and I went, Is it too hard? Is that too hard on him? You know, he loves him so much. He didn't, you know, he didn't want to do too much. He didn't want to do too little. But thank God he was sharp, sharp enough to bring him to repentance. And that's what happened. For I perceive the same epistle has made you sorry though it were but for a season. And I'd just like to point out as I get down to 10 and 11, there are seasons of sorrow and repentance that we all must go through. There are seasons of sorrow and repentance where God sometimes 
to teach us a lesson may remove his hand from us for a little bit. There are times whenever God will try your heart through trials. And he will leave you in a state. And I'll tell you, for the, for the child of God, when we fall, there is nothing more bitter. There is nothing more bitter than that. And uh, it's the saltiness of tears that eats out that corrosion. And these Corinthians sorrowed after a godly manner. And we know here in verse 10, there's two kinds of sorrow. There's the sorry of, I, sorry I got caught. And there's the sorry, which is not really sorrow, right? The two kinds of sorrow here are godly sorrow and the sorrow that leads to death. Judas had the sorrow that led to death. And Peter had the sorrow that led to weeping bitterly in his repentance. The sorrow of the world works death. For behold, this self-same thing. Now this is where we're going to get some good instruction, brothers and sisters. Deep sorrow results in deep repentance. This is a notorious repentance right here. For behold, this self-same thing, that you sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you, yea, what clearing of yourselves, yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, Yea, what vehement desire. Yea, what zeal. What revenge. In all things you have approved, proven yourself, to be clear in this matter. They went to such an extent in their repentance that there was no question they had cleared themselves from this sin. Wish I had time to go through every one of these words. But I think it might be a good idea if, say, a husband and wife are having a situation and there's been sin in a marriage, that the husband or the wife, either one, would take this list and go through every word and write their repentance out and use that to make amends in the relationship. Or whatever the situation. This is the how. To go through these words and think, how have I revenged this sin? How have I been careful to make sure it doesn't happen again? How have I cleared myself? What is the indignation that I have against this sin? What is my desire? Where is my zeal? And to write all of that out and pray God to use the Holy Spirit to take that and to make healing in that relationship. These Corinthians did that. And he would go on to say here, Therefore, we were comforted in your comfort. They were comforted because this kind of sorrow and painful getting the cancer out of the heart led to comfort and joy. Comfort and joy. Right there in, in 13, he said, Therefore, we were comforted in your comfort, yea, and exceeding the more joyed, we for the joy of Titus, because his spirit was refreshed by you all. Brothers and sisters, this is one of the great paradoxes of the Christian life. In the midst of sorrow, there is joy. We're not talking about pleasure there. We're talking about joy. 
Joy is a deeping, deeper pleasure than pleasure. This abiding joy that we have in the, in the presence of the Holy Spirit, when we go deep in our repentance, that's evidence we are the children of God. When we are willing to do whatever it takes to clear the name of our Master and our love, the one that we love, that proves our love and our repentance. You know, there was an appointed time, I believe, I don't think it's any accident you're all here this afternoon. I don't believe in accidents. I believe in purpose. God of purpose. Now I know there's some things in the Old Testament about accidental hammer head flying off and hurt somebody, but God has got a purpose. And, and you're here this afternoon, and one of my favorite stories was there was an appointed time that Jesus had to be somewhere. And He walked a long way to get there. And He was thirsty when He got there. And we are told that He must needs go through Samaria. And He gets there, you know, He's sitting, waiting for this woman that's coming in the heat of the day. A woman five times defiled. A woman who can't come with the other ladies to the well in the cool of the day. And when she saw him sitting there, she must have thought, what is he doing here? And then when he speaks to her, she's probably thinking, why is he talking to me? Doesn't he know what I am? And then, the woman who was so defiled, so marred, Christ had this appointment with her to give her the water of life. I'm so glad He didn't look at her and say, oh no, she's got a nose ring. Uh Uh-oh, she's got a tattoo. He loved her where she was at. He loved her just like she was. It's the way He loved you. When you were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Praise be to His name. And then that that woman there left that water pot, left all her sins behind, and she went to town. And she didn't care what people thought anymore. She became the evangelist for Jesus Christ in that town. She was no more worried about it. Come see this one who told me everything I'd ever done. And she repented, and her repentance became notorious in the land. And many in that city came out. Brothers and sisters, we all, this, this message is, you know, sometimes we hear a message and we say, well, I wish Uncle Fred was here <laughs> to hear that message. Brothers and sisters, if you're here this afternoon, this message is for you. It's for me. We've got to look and get the beam sticking out of our eye before we can help each other. I pray that the Lord would take this message and apply it to you. I pray even the Holy Spirit this afternoon might call somebody out of life, from death into life, and that you would experience this joyful, painful change of mind, and that you might bring forth a notorious repentance whereby everybody who sees you will know He loves Jesus, she loves Jesus. May God bless His Word.
been a good day. I don't know where y'all were at when you came in the door this morning. But my hope is that the Lord has used this time in a way that glorifies Him and draws you closer to Him. I do ask for your prayers. I know it's the afternoon service, and I'm the last preacher. I won't take long. I want to talk about hope. Hope. And we probably need to recalibrate when we talk about hope. Sometimes we use that word real loosely. I hope it don't rain. Or I hope it do rain. Or I hope I win the lottery and I've never played so the mods ain't real good. But when we use the word hope like that, it kind of has like a wish, right? There's really no teeth to it. It's something I'd kind of like for that to happen, but... If it does or not, we'll see. When the Bible speaks of hope, it's not like that. Okay, when First Timothy one and one, Apostle Paul opens up that letter, saying, "Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and our Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope." You have a hope. You have someone in whom your hope resides. And that hope is not, man, I wish something. No. This hope is an earnest expectation. I'm just waiting for it to be fulfilled. Hey, little kids, if I take this and I drop it, what do you think is going to happen? It's going to break. It may break. It's at least going to spill, right? I have a hope, an earnest expectation that if I let go of that glass, it's going to fall down to the floor, right? Is there any doubt that it's going to levitate there and just hang out? None, right? You know what's going to happen. Now, if I hold it here, man, I could do that. Y'all want to wait stay awake? <laughs> if I preach the rest of the sermon, you just wonder if he's going to drop that glass. Eventually, his arm's going to get tired at some point, right? It's just a matter of when. Right? If I let go, it falls. Well, that's the idea in our hope. There are hopes mentioned in the Bible. They're all centered in our hope, which is Jesus Christ. His completed work of redemption because of what He did, because of how perfect He was, and how His work had no mistakes, and how He's going to get everything that He bought and paid for is going to be with Him. You have some hopes some things that you are looking for. You are earnestly expecting. You are desiring and just waiting for. What are some of those things? How about, we we heard it this morning. It was really fun, y'all. Being a preacher, driving down the road, or she's driving, I'm thinking, these are some verses I'd like to talk about. I don't have two hours to talk about them. Man, I'm, I'm writing them down and hearing those other preachers calling them out. And she's like, yes, all right. One of them was over in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11. Abraham, he was looking for a better country, right? A better city. He'd been promised a promised land. Did he ever own any of that? No, right? He was a pilgrim there. He was a sojourner. That means you're allowed to be here, but you're not the owner, right? He was 
given, and you and I will be given. What we will receive is an inheritance, a better land. That's our hope. That's what we're waiting for. Is there any doubt in it? No, because our hope is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, our hope, His work. So we can hope in a hope of a better country. That's a hope you have. Y'all ever said, well, I'm just feeling hopeless. We probably have. That's something we need to recalibrate. Okay, that, what you're really saying is, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of down in the dumps. I'm discouraged. Things aren't going the way that I'd like it to, and so I don't feel great. And I'll say something foolish, like, I'm hopeless. You're not hopeless. That would be without hope. The truth of what Jesus Christ has done and who He is and what He's secured does not change based on your emotional state. Alright? If you need to encourage yourself in the Lord, you're going back to learn about who He is and what He said that He's done and what He said He will do for you. Is He trustworthy? You better believe it. Right? And so if He's given you these precious promises, you can rely on them. You can hold on to them. You can hope in them. So you have a hope. A hope in Jesus Christ. They've got a hope of a better country. I was preaching through Galatians at home, and this one just really struck me in Galatians 5. 5 is that we, through the Spirit, wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. You feel particularly righteous all the time? No, if you're honest with yourself, if you've been born again, you know you're not righteous. Before you are, when you're dead in trespass and sin, you can find other folks to look at and say, well... I'm not like so-and-so, so I must be okay. But that's one of the gifts of being born again. You get to see how rotten you are. And that makes the work of Jesus Christ so much greater. Right? He gets all the credit for loving you when you were unlovable. But we have a hope, an earnest expectation, that which we're looking forward to, a hope of righteousness. Now, if God already sees us through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that's beautiful. That's wonderful. But we'll get to enjoy that fully one day, that hope of righteousness. When you're in, the, in glory in that better country, you'll be righteous. Lock, stock, and barrel. There won't be the ifs, ands, or buts, or the sorry elbows, or all the things that hold us down here where we can't even really praise as we want to. Can't really focus as you want to. When you're reading your Bible, what do you, your head starts bobbing, right? This is the best ever written. The most sure thing that you could ever read. And yet we can't pay attention for ten minutes. Right? Go read your Bibles. Pay attention. It's good. All right? But you have a hope of righteousness. Over in Titus 2 and 12, it says, We have a hope of our Lord's return. The world will laugh at you, right? Y'all are a bunch of fools. Well, yeah. The gospel to the carnal mind is foolishness. But our Lord, who's never told a lie, promised us that He's coming back. Are you hopeless today? No. no, you better not be. You're not, whether you feel like it or not. We can talk about that later. But you're not hopeless. Your Lord has promised you that He's coming back. That's something you have to hope in, something to wait for, to look forward to. There's a lot of waiting involved in this game, right? Yeah, and waiting with patience. But you know what? Because you have that hope, you can cheerfully wait. All right? Y'all ever seen kind of a really intense movie? And the first time you walk through, you're like, I don't know if my character I like is going to live or die or what's going to happen. Is the bomb going to go off? Watch that movie the second time. Are you near as stressed? Now, why? You know the ending. You know the ending. 
Your hopes are not dashed. The hero, Jesus, wins. He secures everyone that He bought and paid for and they will be with Him in glory, which is perfect. And you will be perfect. You'll be praising Him perfectly. And He's going to come back. It's going to be a great day. You're not hopeless. You may feel mully grubby, but go encourage yourself in the Lord. These truths are still true. You have a hope of eternal life. We had to bury my granny a few weeks ago. That was sad. I had to get up and talk. That was hard. Right? Getting words to come out of my mouth. And I'm just like, frog, right? No. But that's part of this world. Death. Right? Product of sin, right? Before sin, there's no death in the world. Sin, here comes death. Wages of sin is death. That is an attribute of this life. That part will go away. Y'all, we can't appreciate the concept of eternal life. Right? It's, it's beyond our little finite brains. I get that. But it's going to be perfect. And there won't be a parting. Right? On the best meeting, sometimes you start looking at your clock. Oh, no. We've got to wrap up. At some point, we've got to go home. We've got to have lunch. Right? You got to... Things have to go away. Not there. Not in that hope. You have a hope of eternal life. And it's not a question mark. It's not a... If you are just good enough, because he was good enough. Hope. Oh, how about anybody hurting today? These benches. They're comfy benches, but after a while, not so comfy. Why? Why do they hurt? Because your bodies are not perfect. As I'm learning, the older you get, the more not perfect they get. Right? I had a twitch in my neck just doing that. What was that? I threw out my back once tying my shoe. I mean, I bent over. That was it. I regret it after three weeks when you get slip-ons, right? Your bodies aren't perfect. If the older you're allowed to live, the more they wear out. You have been given a promise. You have hope of a glorified body. What? These are things that you have to hope in and not just wishing, oh, I wish I'd win the lottery. I really don't even wish that anymore. I'm going to cause so many more problems. These are things that you have that have been purchased for you and prepared for you and reserved for you. You, individually. Your Lord knew you. It wasn't just dragging the bag and say, okay, i got a handful. This is it. No. You. And you have a glorified body. This one will be changed, right? Transformed into the perfect body that you will then get to worship for the rest of an eternal life in a perfect place there with your Lord who promised He'd come back and take you to Him. Y'all still with me? Yeah! We should be some of the happiest people on the planet. If we remind ourselves about who Christ is and what He's done and what He's promised for us, even if we're just looking at the goodies, right? Because they're great. They're great. And that far outweighs all the afflictions that we'll experience here. You put them in the, the scale of the balance. And over here, you've got maybe the dust. And over here, it's like, whoo, Mount Everest. That's the good. It doesn't even compare. Our hope is not here. It's not. If you start putting your hope and your expectation in things here, you will be disappointed. 
they will pass away. They will fail. People will fail. Jobs will fail. Houses will burn. Whatever it is you put your hope in, if it's here, you will be disappointed. So recalibrate what it is you put your hope in. Put your hope in the Lord. And earnestly, eagerly anticipate the fulfillment of all these things that He's promised. Okay? And a lot of that involves patiently waiting. Y'all real good at that? Me neither. Romans 5 talks about uh, tribulation worketh patience. As a young parent, you discover that to be true. (laughs) But it goes on there, doesn't it? Let Let me go flip so I get the exact right words. Tribulation worketh patience. And I believe it's patience experience. Patience experience. The Lord will try us. He will test us. He will grow us. And He'll use trials to do that. And as you're going through those, you learn to bear more patiently. And what are you doing while you're patiently waiting? To be cheerfully waiting, it's not saying, wow, this is so much fun, I'm getting my teeth kicked in. No, it still hurts. But you can have your mind recalibrated on what's true, what's permanent, what's everlasting. Not the temporary stuff that I'm going through. Right? I'm refocusing. And when you live through that experience, because eventually it'll end. You'll go to another one. Just <laughs> but eventually that one will end. And then you've got some experience. I have lived through another trial where the Lord has blessed me to grow in patience. And I've now got it. I feel, I've experienced the Lord carrying me through. I can encourage somebody else. You can see that that first time young parent, they're trying out. It's going to be okay. The Lord's still in charge. You're not in charge. If you ever think you're in charge, try and have a kid, right? Got to really try and grow into that role. But tribulation worketh experience. And what is experience? Experience worketh hope. The more things that the Lord has carried you through, the more and more your hope and your expectation, your earnest zeal for that which is to come can grow. And hope maketh not ashamed. When one is ashamed in the Bible, it means something that you thought was going to happen didn't. And now you're embarrassed. You ever recommend somebody for a job and then they show up and then they really make you look bad because they did a terrible job? Right? That's looking shamed, right? I put I went out on a limb to say something, this would be a good thing, and it turned out to be not, right? When you're talking about the promises of God's word and what Jesus has done and what he secured, you will never be ashamed. Right? One, you're not banking on your own credibility. You're just saying, This is what God said. Is he trustworthy? Yes! He is. And so through your life, you get to grow and grow and see through experience after experience of how He is trustworthy, how He's brought you through it, and how He continues to use it. Even though the things, they can be hard. All right? So I'm not up here saying, sunshine and roses, you're going to have mountaintop experience for the rest of your life. If I did, I'd be lying. It's not my experience, it's not your experience, and Scripture doesn't say that. If you're going to live godly, you shall suffer tribulation and persecution. The world's going to hate you. Jesus promised that. 
right? If it hates your master, are you any better as his servant? If you're acting like him and you're doing like him, and you should probably be getting the same treatment from the world, right? But what did he say? He said, don't be discouraged. Paraphrasing here. I've overcome the world. You've overcome the world? He has. Rest in that. Hope in that. We've got a great boss. Right? One that's wonderful to work for. One that loves us. And one whose love will never go away. He is our hope. He is our earnest expectation. Embodied. And because of His work, there's so many of these other wonderful benefits that He has accorded us. Of His own pleasure. This is the beauty of God's plan of salvation. All that He did, it's for His own glory. None of us could ask for it. I mean, above all that you could ask or think, if you were trying to think of the best thing I could get, is this what you come up with? No, this is way beyond. And we can't even really understand it yet. It's like trying to quantify the Lord's love. How far can you measure that way? And how far that way? And how far that way? And that way? And then add in time as a different dimension. It's just, whoa! It's bigger than you and I can handle. Hope. I want you to think about that word this week. Do I have hope? Yes. What is my hope in? And if I'm disappointed in what I'm hoping in, go recalibrate to that which is real, that which is lasting, and that which never fails.